Amen. Thank you so much, guys. If you have a copy of God's Word, please take it and turn to 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 18. We've been in the book of 1 Peter now several weeks, and what we've discovered is that the book of 1 Peter is a manual for aliens and pilgrims. And the reason it's a manual for aliens and pilgrims is because if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you indeed are an alien and a pilgrim. This world is not your home. Your final resting place will be in the kingdom of our Savior, Jesus Christ. And because of that, we recognize that our inheritance, what matters to us, what's valuable to us, doesn't come from this world. It rests in what we have in Jesus Christ. And because that's true, and because what Peter showed us is that we have this alien identity, he pushes us, he challenges us to think less and less of ourselves as consumers— that are just here to receive and to get and to have more. He challenges us to think less like that and more like an ambassador from another kingdom who's here to invest, who's here to give the gospel and the goodness of the grace of Jesus Christ to a lost and dying world. So what Peter tells us is that you and I, our lives are meant to be such. We are meant to be people that are living so differently that it causes people to ask, why are we here? Why do I exist? Peter put some teeth to this last week in verses 11 and 12, where he told us that the way you and I are called to live as followers of Jesus, as we're called to live in such a way that we prepare people around us for the soon and coming return of Jesus Christ. One of the themes in the book of 1 Peter is that Jesus is, in fact, coming back. He is coming back to judge the living and the dead, to pronounce victory, a final victory over this world. And when he does that, the people that will be prepared for his return are those that have turned from trusting themselves, turned from trusting sin, and instead have turned to trust Christ. And so if that's the only way that people can be prepared for Christ's soon and coming return, you and I are called to live in such a way that we have an opportunity to point people to that. Our lives are meant to be representative of such a different citizenship, such a different identity that we look so different that people stop and ask us, what's different about you? How, how come you're not responding to that conflict, that problem, the same way the rest of us are? How come with November 8th on the way, you're not wringing your hands? Does anybody know anything happening on November 8th? Sure. I think there's an election. I don't know about you, but I'm ready for it to be over. Can I get an Amen. Amen. I'm ready for it to be over. We're not worried, though. We're not wringing our hands thinking the sky is falling. Why? Because our citizenship, our hope, our identity rests in Christ and his soon and coming kingdom. And so Peter says, we got we to work on how to live that kind of identity out in several different contexts. Last week, he talked about the context of the government how we're to relate to governing authorities over our lives. And what we learn is we are called to submit to those. And as much as they do not ask us to sin, and as much as they never ask us to go against what God has said, as long as they're not doing that, we're called to submit to governing authorities. What Peter's going to do today is he's going to take that same theme, living in such a way to prepare people for Christ's return, and he's going to apply it in the context of your job. Today, Peter's going to talk about the often overlooked idea of vocation, that God uniquely fashions every single one of us for work. 
So from the beginning, Genesis 1-4, we're not designed to sit and just watch the world go by. Part of our identity in Christ is that God made us with unique gifts, unique abilities, and those are meant to be used to work for our good and for God's glory. And Peter says, I want to show you how you're to live in that context of work, in that context of your vocation, so that people are better prepared for the soon and coming return of Christ. To see how that's supposed to happen, turn in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 18. And if you're there, would you please stand to your feet as we together as a family honor the reading of God's word. 1 Peter 2, 18 through 25. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing, when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if, when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but now have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. This is the word of the Lord. This is God's holy, infallible, and inerrant word to us. Would you pray with me, please, church? God, in these moments, we're asking for something supernatural that we cannot contrive or control. God, I'm asking right now, Lord, we're asking for you to speak to us. God, would you take your word, and by your spirit, would you open our eyes? Would you soften hearts? Would you revive your people through your word this morning? Lord, in a way that only you can. God, would you please help us as we hear your word this morning, not just to hear it. Would you help us to be doers of your word as well? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You can be seated. First thing Peter's going to unpack for us is this idea of vocation. Christian vocation. Now, if you notice in your Bibles, in verse 18, he starts by addressing servants. The reason Peter is addressing servants is because in the day and age he was writing... The vast majority of the Roman Empire was indeed either a bondservant or a slave. In fact, some scholars estimate 60% of people living in the Roman Empire were in this position. As Christianity began to spread, the people who were in these positions of servants or slaves, they began to hear the gospel, and many of some of the earliest converts to Christ were household servants and slaves. These, again, were people who had either been conquered by the Roman authorities, or they had sold themselves because of a debt into slavery to pay that debt off. Regardless, Peter is addressing the vast majority of people where they were living and working. 
And so the reason what I'm doing this morning is trying to draw a Christian idea of vocation from this is because I believe that's what Peter's doing. He's addressing people, the vast majority of the people that he was writing to, right where they were, nine to five. Now, the principle that's undergirding this whole thing is this. Your faith, your identity in Christ is not a compartment that's supposed to just be, on, be in your life on Sunday morning, right? Your faith... Your identity in Jesus should be pouring into your life, should be informing how you're making decisions, should be framing how you're viewing the world Monday through Friday, nine to five, as you're at your job. And Peter's saying here that what you and I are to be doing in our particular vocations is look in your Bibles at verse 18. Servants, employees, be subject to your masters. You can insert the word employers with all respect. Not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. What Peter says is that not only does every believer have a vocation, he says in our callings, we are called to submit to the authorities in our lives, even difficult authorities. Did you notice what he said in verse 18? Not just to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust or unfair what does it mean to submit? Submission, remember, church, is not something done to you. Submission is something you willingly do. It's you placing yourself under someone else's authority. And what Peter's saying is, whatever your job is, whatever your vocation is, the authorities in your life, you're to have a respect and a submission to those authorities, even if you find them incompetent or intolerable. Now, the difference between us today in 2016 and servants and slaves in in, in the time Peter was writing is we can leave our jobs, right? We can go to a different job. These people were stuck where they were. And so the, the principle applied, just making sure we're getting a nuanced view of this, is as long as you're in that position of employment, as long as you find yourself under those authorities, what Peter's saying is we should have a submissive, respectful attitude toward those people. I want you to do something for me. I want everybody to grab a piece of paper, a bulletin, something to write on. Everybody do this. If you're a human being, I want you to be doing this. It doesn't matter your age, where you're at. I want everybody to grab something they can write on. Okay? And once you've got that, I want in the middle of what you've got, I want you to write down my vocation or my calling and put a blank next to it. My vocation, my calling, with a blank, right in the middle of this piece of paper. Now, what I want you to do in that blank is I want you to insert what your calling is. Okay? Some of you could be stay-at-home mom. Some of you are teachers. Some of you are butchers, bakers, candlestick makers. doesn't matter what you are. Whatever your calling is, whatever your vocation is that God's made you for and that you do as a part of your life, I want you to write that down. Now, I know some of you are looking at me thinking, I'm off the hook because I'm in school. If you're in school, your vocation is I'm a student, okay? If you are homeschooled, your vocation is I am a student in the school of my home. No one gets off the hook. Everybody's got a vocation. I want you to write in the middle of that. Now, Above that, I want you to put my authority. At the top of the page, I want you to put my authority. My authority. 
What I want you to write next to that is I want you to write the authority over your vocation. If you're a teacher, that's your principal. If you're an employee, that's your boss. If you're a business owner, that's probably the government to some degree because there's requirements, regulations you have. If you're a stay-at-home mom and you're married, that's probably your husband because he's the head of your home. But everybody has someone that they're looking to as their authority, okay? Everybody's got this. Now, what I want you to do is I want you to look at this for a second and honestly answer this question in your own heart. Don't say it out loud because your neighbor might make fun of you if you answer out loud, okay? But I want you in your own heart to ask this question. Do I respect and am I submitting to this authority God's put in my life? Do I respect and am I submitting to this authority in my life? This gets particularly important for those of you who put my parents at the top of this, right? Do I respect, not just obey, not just, okay, I do what they tell me to do, just get out of my life, leave me alone. No, is there a respect that's there for the authorities God's put in your life? What Peter is saying to you and to me is that our vocations, the callings God has given us, one of the ways you and I live very differently than the rest of the world. And one of the ways we help people around us be prepared for the return of Christ is we look very different because we submit to authorities, even ones that we might find incompetent at times. I know some of you are dying to raise your hand if I ask you, is your boss incompetent? Some, I can see you out there. Some of you are ready to do that. I'm not going to ask you to do that, okay? I just want in your mind to go, am I living out? Verse 18, look at it. Don't listen to me. Look at it in your Bibles again. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. Now, here's the reality. These authorities that we have in our lives, because Peter says at times they're unjust, what Peter tells us is there are going to be times we suffer. There are going to be times when we face difficulty. In fact, it gets even more difficult because as a Christian, there are going to be times when my allegiance to God puts me in a difficult position in my employment. Remember the book of Daniel this past summer? The book of Daniel is filled with their allegiance to God putting these young boys in difficult positions with their employment, either in the Babylonian or Persian kingdoms. There's one specific instance where Daniel was working for the Persian king. The Persians had taken over at this time. He's moving up the ranks. And the Persian king decides, you know what? I think it would be a good idea, and some of my advisors have advised me this way. I think it would be a good idea for the next 30 days if you guys just prayed to me. Don't pray to your own God. You just pray to me. And so this edict goes out all through the land of Persia. Daniel's looking at the edict. He's got the paper in front of him. He's got a decision to make. Am I going to obey my employer or is my first allegiance to God going to override what I'm being asked to do? You see, church family, remember, both with the government and with our employers, when it comes to God or human authorities, God always wins. So what did Daniel do? Daniel prayed. You could set your watch by Daniel. He prayed morning, noon, and night. It cost him a lot. He was thrown into a pit of lions. God miraculously protected him. But you and I also at times find we're going to be put in difficult positions, either because of unjust people that are over us, unfair people that are over us, people that show favoritism, people that aren't kind to us, people that pass us over promotions that we should have gotten, 
but also because our allegiance to God is sometimes going to put us in a position where we say, I'm sorry, I can't do that. Or I'm sorry, I'm not going to stop doing that. And so Peter anticipates this. Look at what he says about suffering in verse 19 and 20. Because this suffering is going to happen, he says this, For this is a gracious thing, when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if, when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. In other words, when you and I obey God, even if it costs us, when you and I submit to authorities that treat us unfairly, God sees that and is pleased with that. God sees our integrity. God sees our consistency. He sees our uncompromising faith and commitment to him. And the Bible says that God sees this as a gracious and a pleasing thing. Now, here's the point you and I need to see, okay? The only way we will be employed and live in employment in places like this with unjust people who often pit our faith in God against what they're asking us to do the only way that happens is if we are enduring in our uncompromising faith in God. The only way you and I live out the kind of faith that Peter calls us to in the midst of suffering and difficulty is if we are enduring in a holy and an uncompromising way. That is to say, even if I'm asked to do something I know I shouldn't do, I know it could cost me promotion, it could even cost me my job but I'm not going to compromise. Why in the world should we do that? Look at your Bibles, verse 21. Why is Peter calling us to endure? He says, for to this you have been called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. You see, a lot of times we forget that Jesus Christ didn't just come to die. Jesus did. We're going to get to the death of Christ in a moment. That's the centerpiece of the gospel. But Jesus also came to show us how to live. What this passage tells us is that Jesus' life is like one of those stencils. Did you have one of those stencils growing up where you, you put this shape on a piece of paper and you trace it, right? And you get the picture that you were trying to get from the, the stencil there. That, that word, leave an example for us to follow, is that kind of idea. That Jesus' life is this framework, is this example we're to try to emulate in our lives. That part of following Jesus is recognizing that we're following someone who suffered, We're following someone who submitted himself to people who were so beneath him. And yet, we will face that too. You know, if I'm following somebody, if I'm patterning my life after someone who faced difficulty and suffered and died, I should not expect that I will be exempt from those kind of things. This is what Peter's saying to us. We're going to face that. We've got to look to Jesus as our example. We cannot be surprised by that. We have to recognize it's going to come. Well, what did Jesus emulate for us? Look at verse 22. What's the example that he set? Verse 22, here it is. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Here it is, church family. The way that you and I endure in suffering is by entrusting ourselves to God. The way 
that we live out our faith, even with people that are difficult, even with people that show favoritism in the workplace, even with people that are unkind to us, maybe specifically they target us because of our faith. The reason we're able to endure those things is because we're not trusting them for the final outcome. We're saying we're entrusting ourselves ultimately to God. Now, what does it mean to entrust yourself to God? That means that I'm trusting that God holds my future in his hand. This is why we're not worried about Tuesday. You guys know what's happening on Tuesday? Just making sure you were still with me, okay? Uh, the, the big thing happening Tuesday, why are we not worried? Why are we not afraid? It's because why I can't make any sense out of these two folks being the best two options we have in this country I can confidently say that God has a plan and God is still on his throne. I don't have to worry. I don't have to be afraid. Why? Because I'm trusting not these people with my future, not this political enterprise with my 401k and all these things that I hope work out just the right way. I'm trusting God with my life. You do this all the time. Think about practical ways that you entrust yourself to others. If you've ever gone in for surgery and they've put you to sleep, right? Anybody ever done that recently? Gone to sleep? But yeah, okay. Got a hip replacement back over there, knee replacements all over the room. You, you go to sleep, right? Sorry, yeah, I'm just looking across the room. I know some of you really well. <laughs> see, see, when I'm a pastor and I'm sitting up here, I see these little bubbles over everybody's head because I know where everybody's at. It's really interesting to preach to you guys every week. But I know, and, and when you do that, and when you go under, and your eyes are closing, and you're going to sleep, and you look at that doctor the last time, what you're saying is, I'm trusting you with my life, right? I'm giving, you could do all kind of things to me. You could take pictures with me with my finger up my nose. You could do all kind of stuff. I'm trusting you. We do this with our kids. If you've got legal guardians for your children, right? You're saying, I've designated these people as the people I'm trusting the lives of my kids with if something were to happen to me. And what Peter's saying here that Jesus did, that's a model for you and for me, is we've got to entrust ourselves to God in that kind of way. We're trusting that God ultimately is going to hold our future and our lives in his hand. And I don't have to worry about not compromising. What about my mortgage and what about my 401k and my 2.5 kids and my SUV? What about all this stuff? I, I don't know. I may need to cut this corner. I may need to, you know, just, just fudge a little bit on this report. I'm just going to try to get by and not rock the boat too much. I'm not going to try to cause too many problems. How can we be uncompromising in our commitments, especially in our workplaces? It's because my employer doesn't hold my future in his or her hand. God does. See, that's the shift in our thinking. If I think these people who run this country or the media or celebrities, why are we listening to them anyway about politics? What do they know? But if I think these people ultimately hold my future in their hands, yes, I should be worried right now. But if I believe God does, if I believe God's holding my life in his hands, who can I fear? I don't have to fear anyone. So when I'm asked to compromise my faith in the workplace and I say no, when I'm asked to fudge on something I know is not the truth and I say no, and people around me go, man, you're going to get in trouble. You might lose that promotion. You might not get this next thing. You say, you know what? It's okay. My future is ultimately in God's hands. So I want you to look back at that piece of paper a minute ago. 
that I had you write down, your, your calling and your authority. I don't know if you have room, but above your authority, I want you to put God. Can you write that at the top of your, very top of your page? God. What I want you to ask yourself is this question. In my work, who am I trusting? This authority or God for my future? Who am I trusting? Am I trusting this authority? Who is my immediate authority? Who's my employer? Who's my boss? Am I trusting this person or persons or the government or politics? Or am I trusting that God is going to care for me and provide for me? I don't know about you, but right now, some of you might be thinking, well, I get it, Spencer. I'm supposed to entrust myself to God, but can you give me some reasons why God is the one I should trust and not these human authorities. Let me finish this morning by giving you three, okay? Let me give you three reasons why you should trust God with your future and be uncompromising in your faith and your commitment and your endurance in your workplace. Number one, why should you trust God? Because number one, God is the only one who gives real justice. Look in your Bibles at verse 23. When Jesus was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but notice this, he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. God is the only just, perfectly righteous judge. Now, here's why this is so important. There is no way human beings can contrive a system of governance that is impervious to corruption and ineptitude. Can I get an amen on that? There is no way we are smart enough. I don't care how many checks and balances we have. I don't care what kind of form we can put together. There's no way we can guard against, over the long term, generationally speaking, corruption and ineptitude seeping into any form of human governance. Look at our country right now. Our Supreme Court has become a legislative body. It's not a legislative body. It's a check and balance. It's because our legislative body didn't have any backbone. And so they're wanting the Supreme Court to legislate things for them that they're not comfortable doing, right? That's just my opinion. You don't have to agree with that. That's what I think is happening. And so we look at that and we go, this is not the way it's supposed to work. Why is that happening? It's because we're living in a flawed human system. It's going to be flawed, Even if you and I were in it because we think we could do a better job, guess what? We'd mess it up too. So what we have to recognize is, okay, if I'm not going to find real justice in this life, yet I've got this longing for justice, what C.S. Lewis would tell us, this longing for something else points that there's something greater that you've not been given yet. This longing in your heart for eternity shows you there's something more that we haven't seen yet. What's that more? It's that one day... Jesus Christ will return and he will judge the living and the dead. How can I trust God with my career and be uncompromising and enduring in my faith? How can I do that? It's because ultimately God is the one who's going to give real justice. See, God's not persuaded by rhetorical arguments. He's not persuaded by opinion polls. God doesn't lick his finger and see which way the wind's blowing to see which way poles are leaning to figure out how he's going to land on an issue. God's perfectly righteous. He's all-knowing. He's all-powerful. His justice is pure. Here's the reason why this is so important. If you and I look for justice in this life, 
if we're looking for our courts to give us justice, we will not only be disappointed, but we will be tempted to compromise our faith. Because if I think that the only way I can get real justice is by uh, manipulating it and getting the political system to go just the way I'm going to go, that becomes my God. That becomes my idol. Now, please hear me, church. I am not saying that we should be disengaged from the political process. We should be engaged. We should be informed. We should be ready to vote on Tuesday. But we should never buy the lie that we can somehow legislate utopia. We are the people, the church is the people that say, without Jesus Christ, without hearts changing, we will never see the kingdom birthed into this world. As we've said many times, Jesus Christ is not flying in on Air Force One. Number two, God is the only one who's going to give not only real justice, he's the only one who's going to give real freedom. Real freedom. Look at verse 24. It says, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. This is the doctrine known as substitutionary atonement. That's a $5 word, but let me explain what that means. This is important. This is probably one of the most important concepts in all of the Bible, verse 24. So if you don't have this underlined, I'd encourage you to underline verse 24. What it's reminding us of is that our sin is like a sickness. It's like a cancer that's killing us. Our pride, our hatred, our anger, our bitterness, our lust, our worship of false gods, all of these things at the heart level are destroying us from the inside out. And what the Bible is clear about is because this sin is there, ultimately it leads us to death. It destroys us. Sin deceives us into thinking that doing what feels good to us is real freedom, and then it destroys us in the end. It kills us. And what this tells us is Jesus Christ took all of these sins, all of this sickness, all of this destruction, and he took it on himself. He took all the things that you and I should have been given and he took them in his body, notice in your Bibles, on the tree. It's talking about the cross, that Jesus on the cross is taking the penalty that should have been given to you and to me. So here's the picture. The picture is all of us, every single person in humanity in a courtroom, our hands are enslaved to sin, Our eyes are deceived from even knowing that we're in sin. And we stand before God who is a judge. And the the perfect judge declares all of humanity guilty. We stand shackled, blind, unable to save ourselves. And the picture of the gospel that Jesus just gave us through Peter is this. That what Jesus does for us is while we're being pronounced guilty, Jesus walks in the back door. He takes the chains off of us. He takes the blindfold off of us. He moves us out of the way and he stands in our place as our representative is guilty. And the very punishment and sentence that you and I are being given, Jesus moves us out of the way by our faith. And he takes our place. And the sentence and punishment that should have been given to us, Jesus takes on himself. The cancerous sickness of sin, what this is saying is that Jesus takes on himself. I was thinking about this this past week, reading this passage of scripture from a parental perspective. I've known, maybe some of you are parents um, that have walked through the pain of having a child that's been very sick walk with families that have had children that have had cancer or very debilitating diseases and every single parent I've talked to would say if there was a way 
for me to take this sickness from my child and for me to get it and for them to not get it, I would do that. Right, parents? If there was a way, even with my little Seth who was on the front row with me this morning, for him to be sick, if there was a way, if he was sick with just a common cold, if I could take the cold and be sick and he would be better, what parent wouldn't do that in a heartbeat? We all would, parents. Why? Because there's a parental instinct to protect our children. Can I tell you some good news about God this morning? God has that parental instinct too. God sees his children and he says, you're sick, you're broken, you're hurting. I'm going to take all of the sickness that's in you and I'm going to put it in the life of my precious, beautiful son and he's going to die in your place. But the good news is that my son's not going to stay dead. He's going to rise again on the third day, defeating your penalty, not just taking your penalty, but defeating it. So that, look in your Bibles at verse 24, what happens as a result? That we might die to sin and live to righteousness. The result of Christ's death, burial, and resurrection for our sins is that we can be free from sin to live and to be what God made us to be. So this is a couple weeks ago. This passage reminds me of it. Real freedom is not getting to do whatever you want to do. Real freedom, according to this passage, is getting to do what you were made to do. You were made to worship and praise your king. And what Jesus just did for you is he didn't just save you from something. He saved you for something. And he saved you for a new life where sin is no longer enslaving you. In fact, he goes so far as to say that by the wounds of Jesus, verse 24, you have been healed. I was asked just the other day, what's, what have you learned about God or what's God been teaching you this past year? And here's what God's been teaching me. God's grace doesn't just forgive me of my sins in the past and sin's effect in my life now, the power of sin. God's grace also begins to heal me from the effects of my sin. God's grace begins to repair me from the inside out. God's grace can repair you from those things that have hurt you in your past those things that nobody knows about, those things that only you are really aware of, maybe a handful of other people. God cannot just, God doesn't just forgive you of those things. Listen to me carefully. God doesn't just forgive you. God begins to repair you by his grace. So how do you receive this gift that Peter's talking about here? The way that you and I receive this gift is by repenting of our sin and trusting Christ for forgiveness. How can I trust God with my career How can I trust him in the midst of being asked to do something I know could cost me my job? How am I going to be unwaveringly committed to Christ in that moment? It's because I realize that what he's given me is better than anything anybody else could ever offer me. Job? Just a job you're talking about? There's lots of those out there. I've got forgiveness and grace. I'm not compromising that and who I am for this job. God will take care of you Here's the truth. Some of us are looking for freedom when we've already got it. If you're a follower of Jesus, you've already been given freedom. And the challenge for us is not looking for freedom when we've already got it. Some of us are looking for freedom from financial bondage or emotional problems or relational issues, financial issues. What you and I need to remember is our greatest problem is not finances, it's not relationships. Our greatest problem is our sin. And if God has given you freedom from that in Christ, you are free indeed. You don't have to go looking for freedom from someplace else. You've got it in Jesus Christ. Number three, and finally, not only does God give us real justice and real freedom, God gives us real security. 
Look at verse 25. And with this, we're finished. It says, For you were straying like sheep, but now have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. The Bible tells us that you and I, before we knew Christ, we were aimlessly wandering like sheep without a shepherd. But when you and I repent and we trust Christ and we place our faith in him, we are now put under the care and protection of the shepherd and guardian of our souls. What this is describing is the fact that when God saves us, he doesn't just save us from danger only to have us wander back into danger later. When Christ saves us, he saves us from danger forever. He moves us from danger of fire and hell and he puts us in a a position of security in his kingdom never for us to be wandering back into that position again. What this teaches us is the doctrine of eternal security that you cannot lose your salvation. Now this is confusing to some people because some people hear that and they immediately go, well, wait a minute. Does that mean I, I can sin and do whatever I want? No. Being a follower of Jesus means that I don't have to earn my salvation, but I do have to recognize fruit should come. There should be a transformation. But I think one of the reasons there's a lot of confusion about eternal security and not being able to lose your salvation is because we've misunderstood what's on the front end of salvation. We've misunderstood how we've come to Christ. Picture your life before Christ like you're on the roof of a house that's surrounded by floodwaters. You got those pictures in your mind from the New Orleans flood or different floods where there's that family and they're sitting on the roof and the floodwaters are rising. Salvation is not you jumping off the roof of the house and swimming to safety and saving yourself. That's not salvation. Salvation is recognizing that God seeks you out. The helicopter has to come to you to rescue you. You see, becoming a Christian is not like joining the Republican or Democratic Party or becoming a part of the Kiwanis or the Rotary Club. It's not just a decision you made on your own just to figure this out in your own way. No, God had to come to you and open your eyes. And because God's the one that initiates, God doesn't let go of you. That's why when we read that he's this shepherd and overseer of our souls, we can't lose our salvation because the one who holds us doesn't let go. We have to respond to repentance and faith, that's to be sure. We have to respond to the gospel. But once we do, we never can lose it. Let me tell you why this is so important. How can I have enduring faith that's uncompromising in my job, even if it costs me my job? Because the greatest thing that I've ever been given no one can ever take away from me. No one can take the gospel and the grace that God's given you away from you. How can I trust God? How can I entrust myself to him? He's a God who gives real justice, true and everlasting freedom, and it's a freedom that I can never lose because of the security I have in Jesus Christ. Church, would you pray with me for a moment? Every head bowed, every eye closed all over this room. I just want to have a time of reflection with you for a few minutes. As we think about this together, I wonder if there are some of you here today who, hearing this message and hearing about God's grace and His goodness, would say, I don't know that I've ever really crossed the line of faith. I don't know that I've ever really, truly become a Christian. People aren't born Christians. You didn't just get this by osmosis. There is a moment in time God's word is clear that you are born again that you are turning from sin and placing your faith and trust in Christ. How do you become a Christian? How do you receive and experience this grace? It's very simple. 
it starts by acknowledging that you need Christ, that you have a problem. And your problem is that you in your heart have sinned against God. You've lied, you've stolen, you've been lustful, you've been prideful. And because of these problems, like we talked about a moment ago, it's like a cancer in your heart. And what the Bible makes clear is that the only way this cancer can be healed is by turning from that and trusting Christ. Christ Jesus is the only one that can heal it because he's the only one that took your penalty on himself on the cross. And so if you're here today and you're not a Christian, somebody brought you or you just wandered in here this morning, our prayer for you would be that you would see that you have a problem and the only solution is Jesus Christ. He died for you. He took your place and rose again so that you could be forgiven and redeemed. But I know many of you here are Christians this morning. I know many of you are followers of Jesus. I wonder if this morning you need to entrust yourself again to your Savior. Maybe you've been seeing your employers or your authorities in your life at your job and your career as the ones holding your future. And what you need to do is repent of that and say, Lord, you're the one holding my future. I'm going to be uncompromising, unwavering in my enduring commitment to you because I've entrusted myself to you, Father. Take a moment right where you are, follower of Jesus, right where you sit this morning, and take a moment and refresh your commitment and entrusting yourself to your Savior. Father God, we know that you are the only hope for this sin-sick world. We know the election on Tuesday just flips the pages of history into a new chapter. But we know that you're the one that's over all things. Father, we thank you that in your son Jesus Christ, you made it possible for us to be not only forgiven, our past, present, and future sins, but to be brought into a new life of freedom and worship and praising you. God, I pray for us that you would continue through your word that's been preached this morning, that's been sung, that it would take deep root into our hearts and it would bear fruit throughout this week. God, I pray that you indeed have and would continue to revive your people this morning. In Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen. Would you stand with us and sing this morning and respond as God leads you today?